0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media, let's make some noise.
0: Sam, get the DA's office and get a warrant for Brown's arrest. Take a look at Joe McCloy here.
2: Used to be my boss. Now I'm his. What's the difference between me and him? We breathe the same air, sleep in the same hotel. He used to own it.
3: Now it belongs to me. We eat the same steaks, drink the same bourbon. Look, same manicure, same cufflinks. But there's
0: only one difference. We don't get the same girls. Why? Because women know the difference. They got instinct. First is first, and second is nobody.
3: Thought maybe we could go dancing. I've been dancing, Lieutenant. Furthermore, you haven't been around here for six months. And furthermore, if you want a date, do what the others do, call me first a week in
0: advance. I'm trying to run an impersonal business.
2: Killing is very personal. Once it gets started, it's hard to stop.
3: He was very insistent. What was her name again? Alicia. My name is Anna Lee Jackson. Are you sure you never took an ocean voyage? Well, if I had, I certainly would have remembered.
0: Kill him tonight, not tomorrow.
4: Mr. Brown will be dead soon enough. The boys will take care of him for his long double cross.
0: But if we do it now fast, we'll save a lot of people a lot of trouble. You should have hit me back. You haven't got the
4: hate. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jedediah Ayers.
1: First is first, and second is nobody.
4: Also back in the booth is Mr. Brian Hoyle. Good evening. We kick off November 2019 with a look at Joseph H. Lewis's The Big Combo, written by Philip Yordan. The film stars Cornell Wilde as Lieutenant Leonard Diamond. He's a cop with a soft spot for Susan Lowell. She's the main squeeze of Mr. Brown, played by Richard Conte. Diamond and Brown play a strange game of cat and mouse as Diamond seems to pursue justice while Brown is a psychopathic thug who thinks he's anything but... Of course, we're going to be spoiling this movie and a lot of its twists and turns, so if you don't want anything ruined for you, turn off the podcast now and go watch it. So Brian, when was the first time you saw The Big Combo and what did you think?
5: Oh, God, I would have first seen The Big Combo when I was at university and studying American film of the 1950s. uh, Obviously, we watched a lot of film noir. Joseph H. Lewis's name came up a couple of times. I saw Gun Crazy first, loved it, and then checked out The Big Combo, which I'd read was his masterpiece, and I think it still is. And after that, I became very interested in Lewis's work, watching as much as I I could, really. Um, And as much as I've Liked some of his earlier films, things like My Name is Julia Ross or uh, So Dark the Night. I mean, very interesting B-movies. Um, I keep coming back to this one. I think this really is a spectacular piece of not just noir, but really stylish, classic Hollywood filmmaking.
4: How about you, Jed?
1: You know, I'm not really sure. When I first saw it, it was probably about 15 years ago, right around the time my uh, my first Child was being born. I remember I went to the library and just stocked up on all the old uh all the old movies I could. I just was so sleep deprived of just watching movies constantly and I think I saw it I probably saw it then, but you know frankly it's lost in uh in the haze of uh, you know I think for years I probably had it and the big heat uh confused. Over the last couple of years, I've I've revisited a lot of those movies that I, I first saw then, and, and uh, they you know they're more distinct in my mind now. But uh, it's yeah, it, it was probably about 15 years ago, and I, I probably needed about 15 hours of sleep to make any sense out of anything.
4: That's interesting that you're getting this in The Big Heat confused because, spoiler alert, next week I talk a lot about The Big Heat when we're discussing The Reckless Moment. But also I noticed in one of the articles about The Big Combo that the author kept referring to things in The Big Heat. So I don't think there's uh, any fault of yours in confusing the two because there are some similarities, especially the whole diamond-brown um dichotomy is very similar to the two uh the the straight edge cop and the villain of the big heat as well i think like you brian i saw gun crazy i think i saw that in college and then i want to say well i probably saw the big combo in college as well and i saw this one specifically because of two things. One, my desperate attempt to track down all things Quentin Tarantino and... The whole thing of Mr. Brown and Mr. Brown being his name in Reservoir Dogs. And then the other thing was reading about the torture sequence with the hearing aid, which we will talk about a lot more, which also seemed to play into some of the Reservoir Dogs connection as well. So this one was really easy to find for a long time. It still is. I have this on... Gosh, I think I've got this on, like, regular DVD a couple times, always looking for, like, a really good version of it. And then finally, Arrow Academy put it out on Blu-ray over in the U.K., and that transfer is gorgeous, and that has some really great extras on there, including the Tsar of Noir doing the uh, commentary for it. That is fantastic.
5: Yeah, I think it, it it went into um the public domain for quite a long period, hence the proliferation of kind of slightly ropey copies of it that were easy to see but not very good.
4: Yeah, because right now you can go out on YouTube or archive.org or so many different places and track down a copy of this really easy, but it's not gonna look nearly as good as that Aero Academy transfer because I was surprised when those titles come up, it almost looked like they were jumping into my living room. The the print was so clear. And I got to say that opening, man, that jazz combo that is playing, it is swing it, man. This uh, movie is great that it has more of a jazz score than an orchestral score. And that opening with the scenes of the city and the music playing. And I was really surprised to see that this is the big combo by Philip Jordan. His name is right there on the title page. That was very surprising to see.
1: As a writer, I'm really happy to see that, of course, uh, but as a writer, I'm also a little chagrined to uh, hear about his reputation uh, for stealing credit and, and things like that. So, But then as a writer, I'm also very uh, happy for him for that kind of hustle, so uh, I've got very mixed emotions about uh, seeing that up there.
4: Yeah, there's one thing to be a front for blacklisted writers. There's another thing to actually put your name on stuff, try to sell it, and then take the credit when maybe you weren't doing that as a favor to a friend.
1: He's a fascinating, fascinating fellow from the sound of it. Absolutely, yeah.
4: And we talked a lot about him when we did the episode on The Chase. I think that was either last year or the year before. And The Chase has got another one of those just kind of wild narratives and especially the whole idea that the chase kind of starts again at the end of the movie it's one of those that I was absolutely floored when I saw that and then this movie was kind of the same thing I really couldn't believe a lot of times what I was seeing, and I was so happy to see this. I can't say that this is one of my favorite film films noir, but it definitely has its moments that puts this up near the top for me. I mean, it is. uh it kind of reminds me of, like, The Mac, where The Mac has so many good scenes. It's not necessarily the best movies overall, but there are scenes that I will talk about and remember for the rest of my life.
1: Yeah, anything John Alton is shooting is kind of is going to stick there, especially if you're a film noir uh, fan. Um, uh, so many images, so many images from the big combo specifically that, that, you know, may survive longer than the film itself.
4: Oh, yeah. I mean, you are going to know images from the Big Combo. Even if you haven't seen this film, you're going to know those last few minutes of the movie. You're going to see that image and go, oh, wow, I've seen that before. Or some of these opening images when the Susan Lowell character is introduced and her running down this hallway from this uh, fighting arena. Those shots are just, oh, my God, everything looks so good in this movie. Alton
5: probably is the definitive noir cameraman. And in a lot of ways, I think it's not just Alton that makes it so it's Lewis. Lewis has an incredible compositional eye. and I think the combination of the two of them really is what makes it this kind of extraordinary and yeah I'm, I'm not sure i mean i don't know how much the script is by jordan i don't think like any joseph h lewis film i don't think the best thing about this is the writing this is a film that you're going to take away scenes from certainly but yes images from and ideas quirky ideas that other filmmakers wouldn't have done like the brian Donlevy's death scene where the sound just cuts and the whole thing's just illuminated by the flash of a tommy gun muzzle i mean that's incredible not normal you know it's it's the same it's the same kind of joseph h lewis quirk that you get uh, at the end of terror in a texas town his last feature film where um sterling hayden has a showdown in the street you know it's like the end of high noon except sterling hayden doesn't have a gun he has a harpoon. you you, you get those moments in lewis films and you you don't find them in a lot of other hollywood films of the period he was very much the kind of iconoclast i think
4: this movie has definitely made me want to see more Joseph H. Lewis stuff because especially watching some of those extras and seeing that image from Tearing in a Texas Town, I had never seen that before. And seeing Sterling Hayden there with that harpoon, I was like, oh, my God, I have to see this movie now. This looks amazing.
1: It's very yeah, it's, good. Yeah, It's one I, I saw in the last few weeks, just uh, getting ready for this. Uh, it was definitely one of my favorite of the the Lewis films I saw. And I got to say I, I watched a lot of his early westerns and um uh the East Side Kids kind of serial or not serials but the I don't know what you call those those hour long films that he he did uh with the uh, the recurring cast of characters and there were very I don't know there, there wasn't a lot about him that uh, that I thought was uh worth talking about but uh he really seemed to kind of come to a a head here with um uh, near the end of his nearer the end of his career, from what I saw,
4: are those movies? Are those Bowery Boy movies?
1: East Side Kids, anyway. I don't know if uh, Bowery Boys. I think is a slightly different group, but similar. It's it's sort
5: of pre Bowery Boys, but maybe post Dead End Kids. It's kind of in the middle. I think there's overlap in 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 you know characters and casting, but you you've got the Dead End Kids in things like Angels with Dirty Faces, and then they become the East Side Kids, and then I think out of that they become the Maori Boys. He's making some kind of quickie, as you say, sort of hour-long-ish movies with them in probably the late 30s, early 40s. Um, yeah.
1: And his early stuff is maddeningly routine. He's got like eight film credits in 1940. And, yeah, you know, like it's crazy. Three or four of them are those, and, and then several westerns.
4: And I know when he talked to Bogdanovich, he was pretty proud of Gun Crazy. That, he said, was his favorite film. And even when Bogdanovich asked for his second favorite film, he also said Gun Crazy. (laughs) So He knew that he had some real dynamite there. I think though that the big combo is up there. I think that it is maybe not as strong as Gun Crazy, but there are some really inventive things. And like you were saying, that combination of he and his cinematographer just holy cow, they really were doing something special here. And I do want to talk about, you know, we've used the the term combo for him and his cinematographer – I want to talk about what the big combo is, because it took me a long time to figure out what they were even talking about um, with this name. You know, it was that <laughs> that thing that you did with film noir, which was to add the, the big for it. I mean, we talked about that with uh, John Pace's The Big Crime Wave, uh, as opposed to Sam Raimi's Crime Wave or Crime Wave from earlier with sterling hayden so there were a couple things that i was thinking might have been the big combo when it came to this one of them was the music because when it, you talk about music you talk about a jazz Uh, score. You talk about people being in a combo. One I thought was the boxing. And I love that they kind of do a freak out with us here when it comes to the boxing, that they set this movie up as if it was going to be a boxing movie. We start in a boxing arena. We have a boxer. We have Mr. Brown talking to this boxer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We're going to have, you know, the left, right combo kind of thing. Nope. From what I understand, it's the combo of Mr. Brown being both a money lender and a savings type guy, he's almost like his own financial institution.
1: Well, it seems to be when Cornell Wilde uh, is first talking, you know, he's getting chewed out for spending $18,000 in the last 6 months uh, mm. investigating Mr. Brown. He calls uh, he calls Mr. Brown's organized crime. He basically refers to organized crime as uh, the combination, the combinations getting bigger and bigger uh, all the time. And and so I took it to, to be his referring to uh, organized crime, which I think is really interesting. I've never heard it referred to as uh, the combination any other time. But before it was referred to commonly in films as the mob or the mafia, uh, it was what, The Racket a couple of times? Yeah. And uh, The Syndicate, syndicate. And The Outfit, and I don't know if there are any other examples of it being called uh, The Combination, but uh, that that seemed to be uh, what Cornell Wilde is calling it.
5: That's definitely, I'd echo that. I mean, I, I've it's never said in the film, and to be honest, I'm, I'm glad I always get suspicious when film titles are directly spoken in a film, but um, I've always seen it as being kind of, yeah, the big syndicate, but they went for something a little bit shorter and catchier, and it really just means the mob outfit that Richard Conti's character runs in the film.
1: As a title, I do think it works in all the ways Mike was using uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, with the jazz, the strong jazz uh, stuff, and the, the boxing uh, motif, uh, Richard Conti talking about uh, you know always pitting himself against other men uh you know that speech he gives about you gotta hate him, you gotta hate him, you gotta go in there and hate him until you yeah. see red and and that's that's what the girls would come tumbling after. <laughs>
4: the whole cornell wild thing too when he's talking to his boss he starts talking about oh yeah we got to find the treasurer and all this and i'm i'm thinking again this is going to be a whole different movie like we've set up the boxing thing we set up the treasurer thing i keep thinking of like uh the untouchables where they're trying to find the money man and i'm just like okay yeah it's going to be this kind of movie and then he uh is also talking about the susan lowell character and uh his boss is like oh yeah you're in love with her And so I'm thinking, again, this is a different movie, and then eventually we find out, no, he's never even met her before. Somehow he is infatuated with her from afar. He's almost like a stalker character when it comes to Susan Lowell. And I'm not exactly sure why he's so obsessed with her other than that she is the property of Mr. Brown, and he seems more obsessed with Brown than he does with anything else.
1: I was too. I was very puzzled about that. You know, I, I thought maybe when we when we get to know uh, Lowell, she's so kind of doped up a lot and and out of it for a while. I thought maybe she'd just forgotten him. They used to know each other, at, and and she'd been you know several years of of heavy drug and alcohol just, use, yeah. and had forgotten him. But uh, no, it appears that uh, they'd never met before. And yeah, he's I I do think his his obsession with her is probably more his obsession with Brown directed in another way, which seems to be some uh, kind of a theme throughout the movie Brown. Uh, you know, spoiler. He, uh, he's had another woman before another, you know, another w- he had a wife and, and now he's because of his obsession with her and her not being impressed with him. That's why he climbed the ladder of the organization, uh, in the first place. And, and, you know, took the place at the top and now he's, you know, he, he's, he's got this woman and then you, you got the, um, the Mingo and Fanti stuff, which I'm sure we'll get into, but, you know, there always there seem to be these, these weird diversions of, uh, you know, probably, uh, sexual interests coming from, from other sorts of, uh, competition. And I think Lowell kind of feels that way about him too. Uh, you know, she, uh, she says she loves him in one scene and then, you know, uh, in the same scene says she hates him. Weird weird sort of uh, diversions, uh, bouncing off, uh, going different crazy directions with uh, affection and, and, and sexual obsession.
5: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of go with that as well. But in some respects, I have always kind of equated Cornel Wilde's um, character's relationship with, I'm trying to remember the, the girl's name. Um, with the Susan Lowell character, it's kind yeah, well, Susan Lowell's character is kind of being like the central romance in Otto Preminger's Laura. Um, you know, because for the first half of that film, Dan Andrews has never met Laura and he still becomes kind of obsessed with her, even thinks she's dead. I, there, there's an element of that as well, that these, these kind of lonely film noir cops become so obsessed with their case that they can't kind of disentangle you know romantic interest with just kind of investigative interest I think there's a sort of element of that
4: as well in a movie that is so rife with uh quote-unquote sexual perversion i keep thinking that he actually has a crush on brown and that he wants to be with him more than he wants to take him down you know it just it feels almost like a sexual obsession with him and he's more projecting onto susan Lowell. that might be stretching it a little bit but then when you look at the Fante and mingo relationship or you look at uh mr brown and susan and the whole scene where he goes down on her and we'll talk about that more later i mean there, there's some weird stuff going on in this movie so i would not be surprised if there was kind of more of a you know a romance that he wants to have with brown let's say
1: yeah, I think there's definitely room for that, and um, I also I think is it possible that uh, that there were several different versions of this script, and and you know I, I understand it was kind of a, a cheap budget was you know they just not real clear about the dotting the I's and crossing all the t's, and and you know did that. <laughs> Was there some weird overlap? I mean, you know, I know Jordan was uh, supposed to be really good as a, as a script uh, fixer and, and things like that. But, you know, when in, uh, Diamond is talking about um, his obsession with taking down Brown, the, the hypothetical he gives is that, uh, you know, uh, you let him you let him open these uh, gambling joints. And he says, you know, four high school kids are going to go in and get in hawk to this uh, bookie and they're going to get desperate and get a gun and go do a robbery and something's going to go wrong. They're going to kill a gas station attendant and then I'll have four kids on trial for uh, first degree murder. And that's actually the plot, the explicit plot of uh, another Jordan script that came just a couple of years later, four boys and a gun came in 1957 uh just a couple years after this so i wonder how many how many bits from how many different scripts uh are bouncing around in here and uh are are some of these things we're we're hung up on uh are they just kind of inconsistent belong to uh, different versions
5: yeah, possible. I mean, that's that's very possibly true. Um, it's it's kind of hard to say unless you actually get to see you know the multiple drafts as they progress. But I mean, I'm, I'm kind of with Mike here. I say you know I think Fanti and Mingo are are definitely the first kind of homoerotic couple of hitmen that i've come across in a hollywood movie sort of chronology wise um and you get ones later and you know things like bring me the head of Alfredo garcia or possibly don siegel's version of the killers and that there is a lot of perversion or sexual obsession in lewis's films in general i mean so dark the night is about someone who Whose sexual obsessions basically make them schizophrenic. Um, My name is Julia Ross. Has a lot of that. Gun Crazy is about as Freudian a film as you'll ever see, and is really, you know, I mean, the Surrealists would kind of embrace that as a film about Lamorphy. Yeah, he he's obsessed with Richard Conti. You know, Connor Wild's obsessed with Richard Conti in a way that that's more than just professional. And for me, it's it's yes, it could tip into the kind of slightly sexual, but it also looks forward to the, the relationships you get in, you know, the, the, the kind of cat and mouse cop gangster thrillers of um, Jean-Pierre Melville, or even later on a film like Heat, the Michael Mann film. Um, so it's, where again, there's an element, you know, is Al Pacino really just obsessed with Robert De Niro on, on, a, on a professional level, or is there more to it than that? So I think there is there is an element of this in the film. Um, all within a you know, very strict obedience of the Hays Code, though, which is what makes it so interesting. It's all implication, and you can take it or leave it.
4: This was the same year, too, where Jack Elam, I be- if memory serves, we talked about uh, Kiss Me Deadly a few years ago. And there was a weird homosexual overtone to his relationship with the other gangsters that he was running with. And then I can't remember, you mentioned Don Siegel, I can't remember when the lineup was. But my God, that uh, relationship in there was just, that was almost uh, uh, overt, as close to overt as you could possibly get at that point, I think.
1: Yeah, that was... Uh that was a lot of fun. Those Eli Wallach and and was it um Barrymore? Was it Barrymore?
4: I think he might be right. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, it, they were yeah, so much the heart and soul of that movie that was and <laughs> so gross.
4: Oh yeah. Well, in <laughs> that weird like stabbing one guy in the back and it just was felt so much like it was penetration I and mean, it's just so many good things. I like where you're coming from with this whole idea of These might be other script ideas floating around because there's a lot of things that are going on in this movie that we never see. I mean, this whole idea of Mr. Brown having formerly been a prison guard and then somehow got involved with the racket and it's like well that could be a whole movie unto itself or this idea of Mr. Brown usurping this Luigi character who we never see who has been killed off screen forever ago that could be a whole other movie unto itself and it's just there's so many things that are going on in here that we are really just listening in on and and we're these observers hearing these stories and trying to figure out what's truth and what's fiction and I was wondering I us wonder how did Brown go from a prison guard to being the top, you know, uh, the capo de capo of this crime syndicate? Yeah.
5: Well, his, his kind of usurping of um, Brian Donlevy's character as well is uh, that's another film.
4: Yeah. And he, it feels like Dunlovey is some sort of weird cuckolded man. And he's got this, the hearing aid that it just kind of symbolizes that he isn't a hundred percent of a man. And the way that he tries to convince Fante and Mingo to cross Mr. Brown. But Mr. Brown, I don't think he's ever really scared. I think he knows all the time that Fante and Mingo are always going to be on his side. Even when he double crosses them, it feels like, okay, yeah, th- I'm done with these two now but they have always been my guys.
1: Yeah. Yeah. When he tries to convince fancy and Mingo to do, he says, I'm going to teach you how to be men.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Their relationship is just so terrific. I mean, when, um, they're almost on the lamb and, uh, I think it's the leave and leave characters. Like, uh, they're going to be looking for us in every closet. I was like, Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> And then when uh, the other one says, I can't swallow any more salami, I was just like, man, this scene, come on, this is fantastic. What I'm worried about is getting out of this hotel. The cops will be looking for us in every
2: closet.
1: Yeah. Can I just say how much it throws me when they say his name Fante? I always want to say Fante because I think of John Fante, the author who... I always assumed – I guess I never really heard it pronounced, but I I remember reading – before I knew who John Fonte was, I read a Charles Bukowski book where he talked – he referenced Fonte. He had two characters. They they were like cops on on his trail, and they were named Fonte and Dante, and uh, I thought that was was great. Um, So I always assumed that they rhymed, Fonte and Dante, but now they – I mean, I, I heard Fanny, I heard Fanny, I heard Fanny, and then and then I saw how it was spelled, I said, really, is that how it's pronounced? I kept hearing Fanny
4: the whole time.
5: Yeah, I kept hearing Fanny as well.
4: And for you, that's got more meaning than it does for me.
1: It, it certainly does, it certainly does, yeah.
4: A fanny refers
3: to a very intimate area of a female.
1: That could be intentional for, you know, as we've talked about the, uh, the character um, and his relationship to... Uh, I think he's supposed to be the bottom. That there's that scene where uh, they're sleeping in, in beds next to each other, and uh, supposedly the the pajamas they're wearing are are just one one pair of pajamas. Uh, yeah, he's Van Cleef's wearing the bottom, and uh, uh, and Mingo's wearing Mingo's wearing the top. top so. Yeah.
4: I get really into the idea of this is just what kind of nerd I am. I love the idea of graphing movies. So I always picture this movie as having Susan Lowell at the center having Brown and Diamond on either side and then each one of them seem to have, you know, a woman in the, who might be from the past so we've got Rita on Diamond's side we've got Alicia on Brown's side, we've got two men Fante and Mingo on Brown's side we've got Sam Hill who's played by um, Jay Adler and then Captain Peterson who's um, the uh, Robert Middleton character and then you could even, if you want to extend it out too, we've got Bettini on one side being found by diamond and then uh neil on the other other side who he's looking for and it's just like this whole i don't know th- like i said that's the kind of nerd i am where i really like to have this uh this comparison of all these different characters and just having these relationships in the way that they mirror one another
5: so we've been talking about the script having its it's kind of interesting unexplored alleyways there is quite a lot of symmetry to it, to it. you know it's I think if you, if you look at the films that Lewis makes, generally speaking, you're not saying that the screenplays are the, their best attributes, but this next to Gun Crazy is the best script he ever worked with. I think that's a pretty fair assumption. I mean, you know, you look at the scripts of the other films; they're pretty ropey. Um, and you know, Lewis has to do everything in his powers to make the films interesting and evocative visually. Here, you know, he's he's got a script that has a a good architecture to it. It does combine a lot of interesting backstory into ninety minutes. I mean, you know, if you if you think about Susan Lowell's character, I mean, there's this whole second story and career she has as a classical pianist, which you know, the film kind of brings in and then. It, it doesn't drop. It's interesting because Richard Conti, who who presents himself, his character presents himself as kind of being so suave and sophisticated right before the, the infamous scene where he goes down on her. He tells her to turn off the music because in a way it's, you know, he almost perceives that kind of level of culture as a sort of threat. Here's something that she understands that I don't and that, you know, I have to get rid of this. They insist she turn off the music. But I am saying there's that other story there. But the script is, I, I think of, you know, a really solid piece of work. It's not one of the greatest noir scripts. It's not Sweet Smell for Success, but it's, it's still really good stuff.
1: Am I the only one who uh, Rita acts Lowell off the screen? I mean, I really want I, – I, I'd be a Rita guy myself. Uh, I don't know what the attraction to Lowell is
5: really. I, well, I think obviously it's, it's she's married to Cornell Wilde. And uh, the actress, obviously, is uh, Gene Wallace, is married to Corneille Wild, um, and they basically their production company produced the film. Um, oh God, what's that? At, at the beginning, it says it's it's a it's a it's a co-production between two companies, one of which is Theodora, and Theodora Films is is um, basically Cornell Wild and Gene Wallace's company, and this was their first independent production, so. In a way, it's you know, it's the producer's wife, so she gets top billing. But I, I, I don't disagree with you. I actually think that um, the actress playing Rita, Helene Stanson, yeah, she she is probably the stronger actress. I, I I would definitely agree with that. You're not wrong there. And of course, there's that film noir dichotomy between the the kind of the the cool blonde and the you know the more kind of affectionate uh, dark haired girl. But yes, it's she's she's not the strongest link in the cast.
1: But I just I I think the character is more appealing too. True, I, I true. That's all. They're both kind of fallen women, which is maybe different for you know. Usually, when you got a blonde and a brunette, you got you know the uh, the good girl and the, and the the experience. But they're both they're both kind of fallen women in this uh, in the film psychology. Um, you know, one maybe started higher. Uh, you know, uh, Lowell was a concert pianist and all and that she had some high culture, but now she's a, you know, a lush and a uh, junkie and, and likes oral sex. Uh, yeah. Whereas uh, Rita, you know, she was a, as far as we know, always a burlesque dancer yeah. born doing it, but uh, quite comfortable with it and owns it. And um, uh, yeah, anyway, it, yeah. there's not that sort of, Separation between them that, that you often get. And, and I just think the Rita character is a lot more appealing.
4: Well, I don't want to be too catty, but Gene Wallace's hair in this movie, that is not doing her any favors. It just, she needs to do something with it because she's got this beautiful head of blonde hair and it just looks so limp and greasy throughout so much of this that it's sometimes, and again, being catty, it's almost difficult to look at her because I'm just like, girl, you need a makeover.
1: I wonder how much of that is Alton, because he's got her lit, you know, in that first shot where Fanny and Mingo uh, catch up to her. The shadow, you know, they're standing in this pool of light, the three of them, and there's so much dark shadow. And the shadow is perfectly matched to the... uh, the hemline, uh, or the uh, the bust line on, on her dress, and her dress is so black, and the shadow is so black, yeah. she's got that white hair, and that white skin, and that black dress, and it, um, so I wonder if, if that's Alton's influence just saying, no, I want as much, you know, contrast, contrast yeah, as possible.
4: That could very well be, because you can't get that kind of silhouette that you're going to get in that famous ending shot, unless that hair is kind of taken down a little bit but yeah i agree with you as far as i would really like to know more about the rita character and i i feel terrible that she gets dispatched so easily and it it kind of becomes a now it's personal for diamond even though it was already personal and i just it rings false to me it feels like he kind of threw her away before and is okay throwing her away now that she's a corpse
1: It's the one moment of of really, uh, you know, spending the city's money on this apparently, you know, useless task that nobody really wants him to accomplish doesn't seem to bother him. And, you know, hauling in 96 guys on, you know, false pretenses and doesn't bother him and, you know, all kinds of stuff doesn't bother him. But when she's killed, it, it really gets to him. And it's, I think, probably Wilde's. Best moment in the whole movie is is when he's reacting to uh, to her death. So maybe he moves on from it too fast, but um, it's one of the the real emotional moments for me. Because like I said, the 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 Lowell character doesn't bring that out of uh, either one of them. Yeah, I mean, I guess
5: he, he does kind of recover a bit quickly, but this is the nature of the kind of the B movie world we're in. We don't have time, you know, the narrative. Is always moving forward at a at such a pace, really that that you know times for, for funerals and grieving and introspection doesn't really kind of enter into it. It is probably Wilde's best best moment as an actor, and I think he is he does convey there that kind of emotion. But for a man like him, who's supposed to be this kind of, I suppose, man of action, the best way to kind of mourn her is to to get Richard Conti, really. But in in a way, I mean, I, I guess you're right. She, it, it's it's kind of like the femme fatale character, that, or the um, not there's not really a fatale in this, in a way. But the the sort of film noir heroine has been bifurcated between two characters here. And I think if you put the better attributes of both of them together, you probably end up with Gloria Graham in the Big Heat, you know, who, who to me is kind of definitive in in that respect. Um, and that's that's a story for another time. You know, talk, as you say, talking about mid fifties film noir, but even ones with just the word "big" in the title is a, a thesis in its own right
4: thinking about Jay Adler, who plays uh, Detective Sam Hill, and I was very surprised that they didn't play up his name, because I'm just used to, like, what in the Sam Hill's going on here kind of thing, and then I don't know if his name's supposed to be a joke or not, but anyway, I forgot, his character in 99 River Street is very much a dandy, and is uh, there could be some uh, strangeness to his relationship as well, and he, I love his face. This guy's got just an amazing face, and I love that he's kind of hanging out in these earlier scenes before we realize that he's a detective and before we realize his relationship with Diamond. I just love that he's this mysterious man in the background that we see in several of these shots, and he's the one that picks up Susan's purse when she drops it at the club when she's trying to commit suicide. The other thing that's interesting, talking about the pace of the movie, is that this thing is 87 minutes long, and the script that's provided on the Blu-ray is 126 pages. So it's like I know things were cut, obviously, like we see Whit Bissell's name in the opening credits, but he's nowhere to be seen. He allegedly plays a doctor in this. So probably in this hospital scene with Susan, there was more to it. But really, I read the script, and it didn't feel like there was much missing. It just feels like they moved it along very, very quickly. So talking about no time to grieve, there's no time to breathe in this uh, screenplay just because it has to move so quickly in the final version of it.
1: That's the art, is is making something move that fast without feeling uh, rushed. You know, the modern movies we I complain a lot about how long so many of them are. But then when I see shorter films often, I'm like, God, they feel just like they're, they're rushing it. But when I watch something, something like this, I don't feel it's rushed. Uh, when I, you know, we, we've talked about how many different movies there are, how many, how everybody's got a story in this. And it is, you know, a lot of expositional dialogue and things like that. You know, another Jordan script is very, uh, High melodrama and things like Johnny Guitar. How many different stories are in that? But it doesn't feel doesn't feel rushed. I mean, they. It's a different style, maybe of, of uh, filmmaking, but uh, it feels it it works for
5: me. I think it has a lot to do with with Lewis as well as a director. Is that his? I mean, the key word for me when you're thinking about Lewis's style. I mean, some people say it's style over substance. I don't quite agree, but. It's style, and he has this incredibly economical style. He's, you know, in his own way, you could compare him some someone like Robert Bresson, you know, this kind of idea that he never shows you anything that isn't absolutely necessary, and he just gets you... The information that you need from that scene hits the right beats, the right you know emotional beats or plot beats, and then moves you on to the next one. And the next scene is the next scene that's absolutely necessary. Anything that's fat is cut out. When you watch the first the first scene with Cornel Wilde, so after the the boxing scene, after the sort of you know foot chase at the beginning, Cornel Wilde's in his office and Captain Peterson comes to see him, and you would expect... Captain Peterson comes in, Cornell Wilde's back is to the camera, you'd expect Peterson to come in, sit down, and then the editor to cut to a reverse angle, where you look over Captain Peterson's shoulders at Cornell Wilde playing Lieutenant Diamond. It never happens because Lewis never shot the reverse angle. He shoots the whole thing from that side of the room the first time you see cornell Wilde's face is when he turns around in a swivel chair to pour himself a cup of coffee and lewis basically shoots it i think it's about three takes the close-ups are of things like tape recorders or of objects there's one close-up corner Wilde, very quick one there are objects not people right the amount of coverage he shoots is really spare um everything he does is just paired to the bone and that goes for the storytelling as well and it just it moves at such pace it's it's incredible to watch actually as you say especially in the context of modern films that feel over long and overstuffed this had tons in it but it, it, it's short and well stuffed
1: i wonder if that uh that technique that that he does employ throughout this film of the long takes the things <clears> scenes, scenes in long takes i wonder if that keeps it from feeling rushed somehow um And I I don't remember if it was on the commentary for this or if it was in a documentary about John Alton, but uh, um, Lewis did say that Alton, you know, provided so much uh, uh, advice. Uh, Maybe he was being friendly when he said advice or or maybe, uh, you know, maybe all suggestions. um, Yeah, maybe Alton really kind of took control of this. But, you know, he Alton they talked about how fast he worked, you know, he would light a whole scene with a single, you know, a single source of light. Yeah. He'd just like throw a lamp on the ground or something and, and boom, it's lit. Uh, And it, but, but because he would light it that way and because it looked so fantastic, you know, he basically controlled the blocking and, and things like that. And so, you know, it was very orchestrated for these, these long uh, single takes. And I wonder how much that uh, helps it not feel rushed. I think um,
5: that's certainly part of it, but I'll, I'll have to leap to Lewis's defense here. I think he finally found in Alton a cameraman who was fast enough for his way of shooting, who could also make it look as good as Lewis's films, kind of cinematography-wise, as good as they always should have. Um, but in terms of things like the blocking and, and doing things in long takes, that's there from the beginning with Lewis, because it was cheap um if you could rehearse a scene four or five six times get the audience sorry not the audience the actors to know their lines know their blocking and then film it all in one you could get rid of two three pages of dialogue in three or four minutes of shooting time and then be on to the next scene so if you watch something like so dark the night which she makes mid-40s the first dialogue scene in that film has the pattern of a shot reverse shot the camera keeps looking over one actor's shoulder while he's talking to another except the shoulder of whose shoulder we're looking over keeps changing and where the uh, cameras keeps changing but it's all done in one take he blocks the actors to create a shot reverse shot pattern does it all in one shot and then moves on so i think that was always part of his vocabulary there's a climax in a courtroom in the a film he did called secrets of a coed that's maybe a three four minute single take you know it's it's something that he did rely on in the past when you get to the big combo though what's amazing is almost the entire film is composed of those long takes um born and gone crazy of course where they rob the bank from inside the car that's a classic three minute single take as well so but i think here yeah you've got a cinematographer who's willing to go with the director going yeah if you want to cover this in one i can do that and we can do this very fast And it will look great.
4: For me, the weakest parts of this whole movie are when they deviate from those long takes. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of the scene with um, uh, John Hoyt as Neil Schreier. There are so many long takes in that sequence of them having this conversation, digging out the information, Diamond doing the proper investigation, and then after Diamond leaves, Hoyt goes over to this um, bureau that's there and takes out a gun. And there's this really just sloppy insert shot of him taking out the gun. And it's like, what are you doing? And apparently that was at the insistence of the studio. And it's like, oh, come on, guys. This is terrible because they break up this beautiful long take with this really just it's not even well shot, this insert, because I couldn't even figure out what he was trying to get when he pulled open this drawer. I was like, I could have gotten that otherwise. I could have gotten that in the long take place. You didn't need to break that and give me this just horsey, horsey insert shot
1: yeah maybe that's where the uh extra all the extra pages of uh the script disappeared <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe that maybe it was like a twenty minute scene <laughs> I trimmed it.
4: I mean even in the scene you know we, we've mentioned a few times the scene of Mr. Brown going down on um uh, on Susan the way that that is shot is gorgeous as well and and they do this thing where she's closer to the camera he's farther away and they're having a conversation with each other he's looking at her she's looking off screen so it's this whole idea of being detached and I love that and there's so many of those moments in this movie and then that also sets us up for the close-up of her face as he disappears out of the out of the frame, and it's just again economical, fast, gives us so much information and isn't obtuse.
5: Move the actors, move the camera, don't cut. You know, it gives, it gives the scene an incredible kind of dynamic. Um, there's a tension in in the lack of cutting. You know, sometimes people say that the tension's generated through editing. Not not in this film, not in a lot of Lewis's films. And um, yeah, he just knew how to. How to block actors? Um, it's a rare gift that you know not everyone has, and and Lewis just shows that you can, you know, you can say so much through mise en scène, and you don't have to keep using the same rather redundant pattern of shot reverse shot that so many Hollywood films of this period rely on. For me, that's why this film always sticks out as being so interesting, so important. You know, it's 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 nice to see a film that's made almost entirely of really complex, well-judged master shots. You know, that there aren't many of those. Rio Bravo, maybe, you know, around the same period. But it's it totally breaks with that that classical continuity style that you've become so accustomed to in, in films of the period, and even now, that it becomes kind of a drudgery. This breaks that for me. It's very fresh.
1: It also uh, provides really stylish things like uh, Richard Conti and Cornel Wilde not really talking face-to-face. Like, they've got a couple of scenes where they're both facing the camera. You know, Conti is in front. He's not even deigning to show his face yeah. to uh, Wild. It's it, You know, is very contemptuous.
4: Oh, yeah, he won't even talk to him. He has to use Brian Levy to talk to him.
0: Tell the man I'm going to break him so fast he won't have time to change his pants. Tell him the next time I see him he'll be down in the lobby of the hotel crying like a baby and asking for a $10 loan.
1: Yeah, his mouthpiece is deaf that Uh, (laughs) but uh yeah there's uh there's several several of those and and uh you talked some about uh you know shooting over the shoulder there's a lot of that there's a you know the scene where um, mcclure tries to recruit mingo and fanti and uh the uh you got mingo's mingo's back right at the camera but just in front of mingo's back is this lamp um so the the lamp isn't Drowning out uh, the nice lighting on uh, on Van Cleef and and uh, um, Don Levy, but uh, but it's you just see Mingo's ears sticking out. That that's pretty much all you see of Mingo. But uh, it, it, I know the the over the shoulder stuff and the both actors facing the camera nice touch we talk
4: so much about the past in this and i love that it's not only the past that ends up undoing mr brown but it's also the subconscious that it is susan muttering the word alicia after she's taken too many pills and is being rushed to the hospital and it is also brown doing his own undoing when they give him a lie detector test and start doing word association and he shouts out the name battini when they say spaghetti and I also love that when we see Bettini finally later on in the film that he's cooking spaghetti. Again, that's a great touch. But, you know, it's these things that are hidden in the subconscious that come up, that bubble up, that end up being the, the two clues that help Diamond take him down.
1: Yeah, and the Alicia clue comes from him, too. Apparently, he was, uh, you know, kind of not really thinking about it and, and drawing her name in the uh, condensation uh, uh on a on a window pane and and that's where she got it you know he he got uh self-conscious when he realized what he was doing and he, he rubbed it out but uh she she uncovered that uh that's what he was writing yeah so i yeah i like that he's he's still hung up on her you know as much as he talks about uh how uh you know he, he's he's such a killer he's such a full of hate and take the other guy down and and you know you're on top you know first is first and second is nobody uh when uh you know the, the women tumble after you when you've had yeah. that thing but he's still he's still That's it, all kind of toxic uh because he's still hung up on his wife that subconscious is what takes him down
4: Cornell Wilde maybe isn't the best actor in the world in this movie but he's got a really good presence but Richard Conte he is just remarkable in this and his face is just terrific he's got such a great face for this and i know that they almost had another face they almost had uh, Jack Palance in this but i think Conte the way that he carries himself and the way that he talks the way that he has that kind of rapid fire patter it just it it works so well and i love the talking about his face i love when they eventually capture diamond and they end up torturing him for a while trying to find out why he's asking about alicia and what's going on with this stuff um the way that that again is being lit with that really harsh key light from above and the shadows on his face just the the ridge of his brows catches the light so well and yeah like i said that scene was what brought me to this movie and that scene never disappoints and again i like it's this whole idea of taking the hearing aid from dunlevy and using it as a torture device on diamond such a smart idea and and it again it brings in that jazz score so well it's just using jazz as a torture device i mean that was me in college right there
5: Mingo, who's obviously aficionado, uh, says to um, Richard Conte, "Goes, just wait a minute. The kid on the drums goes really crazy in a minute."
1: Yeah, he, I love he that. knows the piece. Yeah, Brian, you brought up uh, something I hadn't thought about when you were talking about uh, uh, Mr. Brown, um, maybe feeling threatened by uh, Lowell's uh, cultured. You know, he, yeah. he says, "Turn off the classical music," but he turns up the jazz. You know, yeah. the, the big combo gets a gets a boost from him. So. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. I thought that was a good insight. Yeah, the
5: hearing aid torch thing's brilliant, and and you know, as they point out, they will. What what can what can the police do? There's not a mark on you, <laughs> um, and you know, telling Don Levy that's the problem. You never learn technique.
4: Yeah, because he ends up slapping him, and Brown is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Let me teach you how it's done. This took me down a rabbit hole of looking up uh, what what's the guy's name? Shorty. Um, Oh, God. Shorty Rogers, I think it is, uh, the, the guy that does the jazz stuff. I ended up looking at so many of his albums, uh, Shorty Rogers and his Giants, uh, trying to find this exact song. So far, no dice, but hopefully by the time this thing drops, we'll end it off with a flourish. And then, yeah, to take that same hearing aid and use it for one of the most striking death scenes. And we've seen people die so many different ways in these movies, but, Talk about stylish! I just love this death.
5: It's brilliant, and again, it's it's however many people had a hand at the script, or how much Jordan did. There's a it's it's good, you know, dramatic foreshadowing when he says to Don Levy during the torture scene, he's taking the hearing aid away, and Don Levy, you know, tries to protect the hearing aid. Obviously, and he goes, "Joe, I'm just going to borrow it," and then the next time it's much more permanent. It's a it's a wonderful sequence, but just just to cut the soundtrack so completely, you know, he doesn't just shoot. Don Levy's death from with a subjective camera, he shoots it subjectively with the soundtrack as well. So we see what Don Levy sees at the last moment, and we hear what he hears, which is nothing. And you just have darkness illuminated by these these um you know incredible muzzle flashes. It's it's beautiful. Um, you know, I'm not sure how many films that's influenced, but you know, you look at things like um, Takeshi Kitano's Sonatine where the final shootout is just done entirely with muzzle flashes, or um, the end of, uh, the you know, when Paul Newman's killed in Road to Perdition, you know, the way that Conrad Hall shoots that. A lot of films have played around with that notion, but none of them have gone as far as to do this other brilliant thing, which is kill the noise. It's, it's great. Um, and as you say, you know, it's... It's just really inventive. This is a film, even if it's not the greatest noir ever made, but I think it is up there, has so many incredible moments that are just not quite like other films. You know, um, Other perhaps slightly better films would have moments that were or less abnormal moments like this. Um, it's, it's really interesting to me. And it's kind of indicative of a period where noir in particular is just getting a little bit more experimental than the mainstream of American cinema. You know, uh, it's, is this the same year as Kiss Me Deadly? Mm. It is 55, right? So, I mean, you know, Kiss Me Deadly with the credits rolling the wrong way. Uh, you know, th- things things are just getting a little bit strange. And like The Hunter's the same year, 1955. You know, there's something in the air. and 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 noir seems to, you know, really be at the vanguard of interesting Hollywood filmmaking. And they're just full of these strange moments that you're not going to see anywhere else.
1: Uh, Do you think that that was because they were low budget often? Do do you think it's, it's just artists having to, to be creative? Uh, You know, I mean, do they, does Lewis say, let's do this all in one take because it's great. Or does, you know, Alton say we don't have much budget to do, you know, I mean, it sounds like you were arguing for Lewis there, but I wonder with a lot of this stuff, how much of it is born of the actual financial limitations yeah. uh, on these guys having to get really creative um, and how much, yeah. you know, would be there uh, without, I mean, obviously uh, Alton lights American in Paris uh, The you know, the really strikingly, it's a big, it's a big production. This is, uh, this is a small one. Yeah. Uh, I think I, I would, never, I would never take anything away from John Alton. I think that the point
5: I was making, really, is just that, that Lewis had been down this road before of we have to shoot this fast. Um, long takes are quicker. That They take longer to rehearse and block. But once you've got them in the can, you've got two or three pages you can move on. I think he just found... You know the perfect cinematographer. If if he'd found Alton earlier, it would have been you know a dream combination. I think. Mm. Um, it's just a shame that you know. I think he just works with Alton this one time. I think Alton understood fast, quick, and and strikingly minimal. And I think Lewis was the master or one of the masters of fast, quick, and minimal. And they just spoke the same language. So. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know who did what With the compositions and the lighting I think they're complete, they are the big combo for me here They are totally Ooh. simpatico um, And it's just, you know, it's the same thing That happens when Stanley Cortez works with Charles Lawton On Night of the Hunter Or St. Cortez works with um, Sam Fuller On, you know, Naked Kiss and Shot Corridor, sometimes you just get a, a Filmmaker who finds a cinematographer Who's just crazy enough to Follow them down
4: the rabbit hole No, I totally agree, because there are plenty of shot-reverse-shot scenes in this movie. There are scenes, even where it's not typical shot-reverse-shot, there's a moment, I think it's of uh, Diamond and Susan talking to each other, and they're shooting these... Like close up, close up, close up, going back and forth between the two of them, even though they're sitting right next to each other, that might be for acting purposes. I'm not exactly sure, but you know, it's okay. Yeah, we're doing shot reverse shot. The torture sequence is full of you know quick cutting and lots of close ups of, of Diamond as he's experiencing this and trying to hide the pain. Or even when it comes to the uh, the death of the Brian Dunleavy character McClure, there's also tons of cuts in that. And oh, but my. God, just you're right, though, as far as the way that they work together. And there are things where you're like, okay, I'm not exactly sure why you're doing that, but it's so effective. Like, we see Fonte and Mingo with their machine guns in several shots, but then when the death shots actually come, their heads are completely cut off. And it's just those crotch level machine guns going off at Dunleavy. And it's just, oh my goodness, it is it's so nice. So it could be somebody else holding those guns, but I doubt it. I really think it's the actors doing it.
5: Shooting stuff with as little light as possible. I mean, Alton says it, you know, his his tremendous book, um, Painting with Light, you know, he says that for him, the most beautiful photography is black and white and in a low key. It doesn't get much more black and white in a low key than just lit by muzzle flash.
4: (laughs) Well, in that scene, too, where there's a light that seems to be going around, I'm guessing it's from a lighthouse, and it just comes in occasionally. It seems to be on the rhythm, but again, you're keeping with the rhythm of the cutting as well. It doesn't seem like it's out of step with anything else. I want to talk a few minutes about the Alicia character. You mentioned shot corridor and just this whole uh, <laughs> this whole snake pit that they find her in, and she's just you know the the whole thing of her trying to take care of these flowers and stuff, and the she's so gentle with that caterpillar that she finds. I mean, there's just so many amazing touches, and that that this actress is only in here for a few moments, but she leaves such an impression. It's kind of like every other character actor that they have in this movie, like. Get, you know I keep going back to John Hoyt, but the John Hoyt scene just sings for me. but when they get um, H- Helen Walker in here as Alicia, just man she steals the scenes that she's in.
5: Yeah, she's great. Um, I mean the, the scene with them outside by the, the kind of the bushes is just wonderful. Um, and I guess it might be one take again. I have to go back and remind myself it is, but no, it's 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 a beautifully played out scene, and and again, this is this is something that Lewis was really lucky with this time. You know, he he struggled for years working in you know B movies, and he didn't always have the best actors. He had a few people he worked with like Nedrick Young who were very, very good actually um, and would be in kind of countless Lewis films but a lot of them you know, he, he had kind of B-list scripts and B-list casts but this time round, while no one in this is a megastar, everyone just makes the most of their, whether it's their five minutes or their two minutes or their 80 minutes um, and everyone is just so well written in terms of the, the backstory and I think if you have a character who's, who's got all the story, you may not be able to Talk about it, but you feel as an actor more supported. There's more that you can bring out, and and I think it's very much the case with Helen Walker here. That you know, um, you only see her once, but the whole plot, a lot of the plot edges on her. When we finally meet Alicia, it's a big deal, and and she doesn't she doesn't disappoint. No, I, I was I was very taken by that performance. But as you say, you know, the John Hoyt is great, and Jay Adler is great. You know, everyone kind of gives it their all on this.
1: You know, one thing that uh, stood out to me this last time and only the last time uh, that I saw it is that um, uh, Diamond's apartment is right across the street from the burlesque house where uh, Rita works. You know, she comes over on her break when she's killed. You know, it's, it's after she's killed and the cops are standing in the hallway of uh, Diamond's uh, apartment. Uh, you can see the burlesque sign right outside. So it's like he really didn't go far <laughs> <to> find her <laughs> well you know, he was uh, fair enough. uh just needed somebody i guess but uh i didn't know what what all to make of that but uh yeah it just struck me ah she's like right across the street i wish it had worked out for them but
5: I mean, it could just be also just good low budget filmmaking in that, is there a neon light yeah yeah you've got a neon light you bothered to pay for a neon light you may as well use the same neon light I'm saying it's, 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 the, it's the kind of thing that, you know, Lewis would do. But you're right, it's a, it's a lovely on a character level that you're right, he didn't stray far to find, to find himself a Rita, um, but he found a good one. Lewis's films were full of these kind of corner-cutting exercises. You know, when, when you have so little money, if you've paid for a neon sign, you're damn well going to use it as much as is humanly possible. I mean, this is a guy who, uh, he made a film with Bela Lugosi in the early-ish one. He's called Invisible Ghost. And they clearly have zero money. So whenever Lugosi turns and goes kind of psychotic, they just literally drop the lighting behind him and up the lighting on his face. And it's, it's kind of like someone's just shining a torch underneath their face in the dark. And then so that the lighting just becomes temporarily unreal. And it's, it's an incredibly effective zero-budget way of doing things. But you watch his other films, there's a bit in So Dark the Night where they clearly don't have a set. So they're trying to magnify the amount of set they don't have by catching a reflection in a window to make it look like there's double the set. And um, reflection clearly isn't very good. So you see a shot of this woman looking through a window, and you don't really see much reflection. And then you see the guy she's looking at in a car, and then it cuts back to her. And if you look really carefully behind her, her room has kind of disappeared, but you don't notice it at first. And what they've done is they've stuck up a black blanket behind her to increase the reflection. And you don't notice because the way he's framed it. But just to make the most of a tiny budget where they've got one street, he's just come up with this really clever little shorthand. And and I think, in a way, that Neon like, could be that as well. It's like, well, we we paid for this damn thing. <gasps> now let's stick it in the back of the shot and let's let John Alton use it.
1: Well, he does good- use it really great, the burlesque <clears throat> sign, because it's <clears throat> when Fanty and Mingo come to uh, to kill Diamond – and, of course, they, they end up getting Rita instead. When they first step into the hallway, there's there's exactly two lights. There's the exit light, you know, over the door. Yeah. It just says exit. And then in a window behind them that you don't even see until it lights up, that says burlesque. And you it, it flashes on them, and then it goes away, and you don't see anything except exit. Exit, burlesque. Exit. It's you know, <laughs> nice. It's uh, nice. You're going to kill the bullies, kill, uh dancer, aren't they? But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful. It's one of my favorite compositions in the whole in the whole film.
4: I don't think we ever see inside the theater other than backstage and her dressing room. So they just keep it super cheap when it comes to that too, because the amount of dressing for a set like that has to be significantly less than actually shooting in a theater.
5: Completely. You, you don't, you never see the, you only ever see the backstage and he, again, this is very kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's press on kind of stuff. He, um, you just hear wolf whistles and applause. So he just uses the sound to create the off-screen sound to create the impression of an audience of horny men. It's very good.
4: Yeah, there's a lot of this movie that could just act like a radio play. Them using, I know this sounds weird, but using sound to kill McClure. I mean, that that in itself is just a brilliant thing that they can pull that sound and we don't even have to hear the sound effects of the machine guns.
5: Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, you can, you can talk a lot about low-budget filmmaking, but I mean, this has to be one of those movies that anyone wanting to make a film on a budget should be forced to study. But you realize it's, it's the guys who have no money you know, or, or working very independently. People like Lewis on the one hand, or on the more arts in the you've got your breasts on, or people like Derek Jarman, who use sound so evocatively to make up for all the money they don't have. And you just want to take money away from big Hollywood studios and say, no, 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 you sound. And because it's, it's inc- you know, David Lynch says that films are, it's a 50-50 ratio between images and sound. Most people say, oh, it's a visual medium and sounds like 10%. Lewis kind of shows that Lynch might be right. You know, that there's so much of this film is done through sound, through not using sound, as in the case of the hearing aid, through, oh, I don't have money to do a burlesque scene. And it's not important to do one either. So, but let's create the illusion that there's a world beyond this one backstage room. And all we need is a bit of sound to do that. And it's, it's, it's great filmmaking, but it's, film, it's making a film with the ear as well as the eye. And that, I think, is a lesson that a lot of people could learn.
4: Let's look at that last scene. Talk about low budget. I mean, there are so few things to go into the last scene. So few pieces. There's like an archway. There's a pump. There's two cars. There's a wall. And... And that's about it. And the rest of it is light and shadow. And I love this whole thing of, you know, we've talked about elimination throughout so much of this. And I know there's parts of like, uh, there's a, the, when they're about to kill McClure, I think he's like, you know, can't you see me? I'm, I'm McClure, you know, and just whole, this whole thing of like being seen. And that it is Susan with a spotlight on a car and pointing the spotlight at Mr. Brown. And that's how. Uh, diamond is able to see him and dispatch him. It is just remarkable. And like I said, this is the moment. Like, if you go and pick up a book on film noir, I think it was, uh, Elaine Silver's, um, uh, encyclopedia of film noir. I mean, this is the image on the cover. Yeah. This. The silhouette of them—I mean, it is just beautiful—and this whole end scene just plays out with pinpoints of light and darkness throughout so much of it, and then this—the oh, the silhouettes of of these characters—it is just one of the most beautiful things and and you mentioned lynch i mean th- this reminds me kind of those scenes of henry in Eraserhead, where you have that blackness that goes off into infinity and the way that the light catches those little eraser shavings you know it just it, it's so gorgeous
5: absolutely and as you say there's this i think it's a lighthouse you think it's a lighthouse that single light that just keeps doing the 360 degree turn So it will briefly illuminate the final scene and give you those silhouettes, and then we'll disappear and make everything dark again. We don't know if that's a lighthouse because you never see the source of the light. All that's beyond beyond that, as you say, the sort of garage that they're in is just smoke and fog.
1: I like that it's an airport. (laughs) It's an airport. There's no airplanes. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the the script is it's an airport. They're going to meet a plane. Right. <laughs> there's no budget. There's no plane. There's no. They're not even outside. It's on a soundstage, and uh, you know, I love the saving money by just saying, "Where's the plane, <laughs> Richard Conte?" Like, yeah, Where's course, the plane? Yeah. I can't believe he's not here yet. And it's like, oh, okay, they're at an airport. <laughs> I'm I, some, sure I buy it.
5: <laughs> but that phone machine just does just wonders as well. Because it makes the light have have a kind of vision, you know, fog, smoke makes light visible. That's why film sets are usually saturated with it. But to use it to the point that you basically just covered everything behind you, you know, it's like, oh, there might be an airport there, but we're not going to see it because it's a very, very foggy day. I love that. I mean, the, even the airport in Casablanca had more visible stuff than this. So right. That's a very small airport.
1: and It's got a wagon wheel in the background. They didn't have a plane, but they had a wagon wheel. Up against the curraghs.
5: That's that's, that's a bizarre thing. Um, This is actually not a joke. Lewis used to have a cart full of wagon wheels, and he used to carry, basically, bring them to every set. And if he couldn't get a good composition with his limited budgets and resources, he would shoot through a wagon wheel. So there were even people in the industry who called him Wagon Wheel Lewis. Um, if you look at Terran of Texas Town, there's some of the greatest wagon wheel compositions in the history of cinema, but he literally, if he couldn't get a good composition, he had a whole thing of objet that he could put in the foreground to balance and make a good shot. And it's just, he, I think he just thought, what the hell I'm going to get my, my wagon wheel shot in here um, for no other reason than I, I've got the bucket wagon you know, the box of wagon wheels with me, but he always did it. And it's just interesting that in a non-Western, yeah, it kind of intrudes, but watch any of his Westerns, half the shots, of streets will be done through a wagon wheel because it just hides the fact that there's very little depth to the image because there's, there's like four buildings in the set. But yeah, that, that yeah. was sorry, I'd forgotten about that, but that was really his thing.
1: I love too the the use of the corrugated tin uh, in that that uh, final final shot because you know with, with film noir of course Venetian blinds are such a such a yeah. thing and we get some of that in, in other shots but but the corrugated tin pretty much does the same effect you know just going vertically instead of uh horizontally it's yeah really really nice thing i'm trying to think of other other films noir with uh, with corrugated tin in it that i off the top of my head i can't think of any but i just watching the scene and god that's such a what a wonderful compositional tool that is
5: absolutely i mean it, it, it does the same job as you say so it, you know, it, it just—that's just kind of creating horizontal or vertical shafts of light for atmosphere. It's—it's it's a really good idea. But I know I can't think of any other ones that use corrugated tin.
1: It reminds me of, uh, yeah, I think they borrowed it for uh, the end of uh, L.A. Confidential when he's that, that shot where he's yes. stepping out of the the gunfight at the the motel and and the cops are showing up and he's holding up his badge over the uh, Dudley's body. It's yeah. I mean, mean, it's very influential, clearly. You think of the other
5: other great kind of film noir endings of this period. I mean, I suppose in its way, the ending of The Big Heat, where, you know, Gloria Graham dies, but, you know, Glenn Ford manages to take down Lee Marvin, etc. That's kind of the most redemptive. And the end of Kiss Me Deadly is kind of the most awe-inspiringly nihilistic, but if you want to talk about the most beautiful end in noir, it's got to be the big combo. It's, you know, and for a genre that, if you want to call it a genre that is predominantly based on its visual style, that's no mean feat then to say, you know, this is the most visually striking end to a film noir. That's an achievement.
4: Yeah. Because we've seen so many amazing things from, the beginning to the end of the cycle and to be able to pull out certain shots for this and say, you know, I think I wrote my notes this is film noir in all caps, you know, because this is the moment where you just go, holy cow, look at this, you know, and you can take that and put it on the cover of a book, you can make a poster out of it. It is just so striking. We're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages. I am thrilled to introduce Ovid.TV, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.TV features films such as Claire Denise's Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to Ovid.TV... That's ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code PODCAST and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to Ovid.tv, O-V-I-D.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get Ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now.
0: And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out AdamandEve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at AdamandEve.com.
3: It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap either. Every week, the Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year, at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again... That's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
4: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. All right, we're back and we're talking about the big combo. We have touched on the, uh, cunnilingus scene, <laughs> but we haven't, we haven't gone into detail as it was. And I love there's, uh, there's a section of Bogdanovich's book, um, Who the Devil Made It, where he's interviewing Lewis. And, um, I mean, some of this might be apocryphal. I'm not exactly sure, but uh, according to Lewis, the uh, Susan Lowell character, um, there was some question as to why would she be with Brown? There was questions from Gene Wallace. Why am I going to be with this uh, Conte character? And the quote is from, um, well, it's not the whole thing from Lewis, is, has it ever occurred to you that you're attracted to this man because of his lewdness, because of his sex relationship, which was so crude? No respectable man is going to love you the way this gangster is going to love you. And then he goes on to talk about how he'll kiss you on the neck, he'll kiss you on the face, he'll kiss you all over on the tummy, and he won't stop kissing you. And that's when it finally clicked for Gene Wallace, and she realized what he was talking about. And yeah, it's kind of interesting that our main character or our main female character is sticking with this gangster because he can please her like nobody else can.
5: It certainly gives a motivation to the character because, I mean, otherwise, if, that, if this very infamous scene was not in the movie, I think you would have to ask the same question that she was asking why is she still with them? you know, I mean Gene Wallace didn't quite understand, and Lewis kind of explained it in these quite crude terms, if you didn't see that scene as a member of the audience you would be asking yourself, actually apart from the fact that she's hopped up on pills, etc what does she see in this guy I mean, he's he's this kind of horrifying misogynist who belittles her and and doesn't let her listen to the music that she wants to, and keeps, you know, has Fanny and Mingo tailing her all the time, you know, that you, you would get out of this relationship is, if you possibly could as quickly as you can you know she's trying to kill herself but yeah there's this there's this dark sexual desire in her and only richard conti seems to be able to uh to satisfy it and of course what makes it even more interesting is that this is all happening while her husband cornell Wilde is producing the film
4: yeah that's the part where i think eddie muller is just like well i'm not really sure if cornell wilde wouldn't have known what was going on with the scene i don't necessarily buy it and i'm just like okay yeah i'm not sure if Wild uh, wilde actually blew up when he saw it later on or not uh, i imagine that he knew what was happening when it came to this
1: yeah it could be publicity too i mean you know get exactly. up some some interest in people to uh, <laughs> ah cornell wilde hated what happened that's a clickbait headline hated but what cornell happened next um i mean i guess it's It depends which
5: account you read. And obviously, you always have to take these things with a pinch of salt because a lot of the great Hollywood stories are apocryphal. But um, apparently, the censors were also confused by this because uh, they said, well, you know, we can't show this scene. It's oral sex. It's clearly oral sex. And, and, you know, this is absolutely verboten. And um, apparently, Lewis appeased the censors and Cornell, while the same way, by saying, no, 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 it can't be oral sex. He's behind her.
4: So is he tossing her salad, then? Uh,
5: You can take this as far as you want to go, really. But it's like, I mean, basically, he could be ribbing her. It's hard to say. But the censors were apparently appeased by the fact that, oh, yeah, I suppose you couldn't really perform oral sex on her if she was facing away from him. I mean, one way or the other this would have come up to question. I mean, you know, the, the, the people at the Breen office would have looked at this and said, I'm really sorry, this is pretty risqué, salacious stuff. So I, I can't see it just passing without comment. So someone had to appease them. So possibly the Lewis story saying it can't be oral sexies behind her is true. It's it's very interesting if it is. But regardless, this is pretty much the most forward, blunt depiction of oral sex that I can think of in a major Hollywood film that's still made under the Hays Code. It's taboo-breaking, if nothing else.
1: We know that Richard Conti is proud of his technique uh, as he chastises chastises Don Levy for for not having any.
5: uh, Yeah. And,
1: you know, absolutely.
5: And it's a film where sex is clearly part of the world. I mean, you know, you you have – you know, you you have the reader character, and you know they're talking about a party for two. What else is that about? But at the very very beginning of the film, Captain Peterson is offered a ten cent cigar, and he says, uh, "I'm off cigars and brandy. My doctor has t- basically stopped me from having everything that's fun or just about." And it's that very important. Well, just about. It's like, well, what else is fun that your doctor wouldn't mind you having? It's like it's it's we're clearly entering an adult world where. Sex is a is a thing, you know. You have fanta and Mingo and their relationship. You've got, you know, Richard Conti going down on his girlfriend. You've got the police, the police lieutenant with his kind of you know stripper girlfriend. You've got the captain talking about how he can have sex but he can't smoke or drink anymore. It, it's this is an adult world, and they managed to play it really well within the limits of what Hollywood censorship would have been at the time. Um, you can look at it now, and it doesn't seem coy, um, and it, and. It's not, it's not you know, like some of those Otto Preminger films of the 1950s where things like The Moon is Blue, where the word virgin was supposed to be so shocking and now it just looks quaint. This still just seems adult and above board, but actually looks really ahead of its time and places, particularly with the, the oral sex, you know, gay couple elements of it. So, I, you know, I think that holds up brilliantly.
0: Why do you waste your time with a cop?
3: Could get me a nice rich hoodlum. You should be able to recommend one with your connections.
0: What is there about a hoodlum that appeals to certain women?
3: Hoodlums, detectives. Woman doesn't care how a man makes his living. Only how he makes love.
4: There is a really good book that, if folks are more interested in this movie, I highly recommend. It is uh, the films of Joseph H. Lewis, uh, edited by Gary D. Rhodes. And there's a really nice essay on this movie in there that um, doesn't necessarily... um, get as head up their ass as I like to get, but it uh, covers a lot of good stuff. And you'll be happy to know, Brian, that there is a wagon wheel right on the cover of the book.
5: I am actually also in that book. My chapter is the one on So Dark the Night. But yes, that is, yes, I am well aware of that book. It's highly recommended. And yes, there is a wagon wheel on the cover.
3: Nobody has ever quoted me back to me before.
4: I am really looking forward to re- reading more of this book, especially about Gun Crazy. And I think I might have to look at next year's schedule and maybe make some changes because I love Gun Crazy and there are so many amazing things about it to talk about. It's just incredible.
5: Absolutely. And, and, you know, best thing that John Dahl ever did and Peggy Cummings is fantastic. And I, it's just, it's kind of nice that Lewis is having a little bit of a, a little bit of a resurgence but it's they're focusing on the right films I think you know there's some early stuff which I said is maddeningly routine and you can sift through it and you will find some great compositions and some some interesting long takes but that's kind of about it whereas when you get to things like so Dark the night my name is Julia Ross and then onwards you know films like Retreat Hell really needs to be looked at again I think his war movie with Nedrick Young Terra a Texas town Gun Crazy big combo those are really really interesting b-movies i mean like top-notch b-movies and it's so nice that you know people like arrow academy have done pristine blu-rays of them because
1: i enjoyed the holiday brand too i mean that's yeah it was a pretty intense emotionally intense i thought for one of those so many of those westerns kind of Slid off my shoulders, but
5: uh. yeah. I mean, like, my name is Julia Ross, which is a really you know, it's an interesting little thriller. But um, Arthur Penry made that as Dead of Winter, so I mean, it's you know, it's it's a film that, that people can look back on with great interest. But again, it just shows it shows the, the, the thing about Lewis is he was he was clearly always a non conformist filmmaker. I mean, his last film, Terran of Texas Town, is basically made by a bunch of people. Sterling Hayden, Nedrick Young, etc., who are basically about to get blacklisted. Mm. So they make a film saying, well, we're not going to be able to work in this industry for much longer. Let's make a film that's personal to us. It's very much like their high noon. You know, it has that kind of subtext to it. And he agrees to join them knowing that it's going to probably end his career. And he never makes another film, but then just immediately transfers himself to television where he works pretty much to the end of his life. But, you know, he was not one to play by the rules, and he was certainly not one who who enjoyed censorship. I mean, there's a great bit in My Name is Julia Ross where you have to show what a guy who's basically a psychotic killer did to the last woman he kidnapped. And you can't obviously show graphic detailed murder in a Hollywood movie. So he gets out his flick knife and he's talking to his, you know, his, his, his aunt, I believe it is. And um, he just goes into this frenzy and grabs a pillow, a very expensive pillow off a sofa. And with the flick knife, he just starts serrating it, and gutting it. And it's a brilliant way to talk about what happened to this woman without showing a single act, you know, a drop of blood, really. And he was always thinking about things like that. You know, how can you do something a little bit shocking, a little bit disturbing, but keep it within the rules that the censors, they can't stop you.
1: It's like uh, Angelica Houston packing a pillowcase with oranges while she's telling Pat Hingle what it's going to do to her when, she, when he beats her with this. Oh, in The Grifters. bag of oranges in in The Grifters. Yeah, I remember seeing, I I, I mean, the power of that suggestion was so great. I remember seeing a couple of people, I'm not going to mention their names because you'd you'd probably know them and and they'd be embarrassed. But I I saw them speaking one time about the most gruesome scenes in film noir and, and they were talking about that. Oh yeah, I mean it was very spur of the moment. What do you think's the most graphic violence or something? You know, I mean, and they talked about how horrifying the scene where Angelica Houston gets beat with a, a you know, a pillowcase full of oranges in the Grifters. And I was like, no, <laughs> there's none of that. It's just her telling what's going to happen as she's packing those oranges in there. And there's there's no on-screen violence, and in fact, there's no violence. The the character doesn't get it at all, but. Um, but, yeah, it's very powerful. And, and yeah, I, I'd forgotten about that scene in Julia Ross. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, with the, but those, yeah, the stuffing coming out of the pillow was, was
4: fantastic. Before we get up the Cunnilingus kind of scene, just I wanted to say one more thing, which was the editing by Robert Eisen in this movie is fantastic as well in the big combo. And the way that they use the dissolve of her face as she is coming to ecstasy as uh, it dissolves over cornell wilde in his office and i just really uh, appreciate that the way that uh, they have that nice dissolve because this movie's got a lot of cuts but to use a dissolve at that very particular place i thought was really smart and they're trying to stretch that out as much as they can just
5: obscure it slightly and, and, and it does actually, the, the dissolve into Cornel Wilde's office does actually also kind of give you more context for this very strange love triangle that's forming. I think that, that element as well, it's, it's it's partly psychological, but yes, Lewis is trying to get as much of that close-up of her as he possibly
1: can into the movie.
4: Yeah, that's probably her most effective acting in that part, I think.
1: Yeah, I agree. I completely agree thinking about sort of slipshod nature of, of some of the police work that, that we're supposed to buy that they can round up every hood in the city in a single night that's 96 of them and and that uh, Cornell Wild mentions you know just kind of blithely mentions oh I got in touch with our overseas military intelligence uh, to get up you know some some details on on this Grazi investigation uh, I I was struck by how you know, if I hadn't watched this film like five times in the last uh, last month or so, that probably would have not even occurred to me. I was thinking of this uh, Christopher McQuarrie thing I, on Twitter. He was watching Die Hard last Christmas, I think, and uh, and he was like, "You know what? This is not how radios work, how guns work, how and yeah, you know, this is not how any of that stuff works. But this is exactly how movies work." And uh, I was like, "Yeah, that that's it." That, that, yeah. So, you know, in ways, I wanted to think, oh, that's that's kind of sloppy. That's kind of chintzy. That's cutting too many corners. With you know, but but no, that's exactly how movies work. And I, I bought it. I bought it the first you know four times this month.
5: But again, it's it's that economy of narrative. We don't have time to talk to Interpol for real and have it take you know two months of paperwork and. <laughs> You just have to, you know, you'd leave those things out because they're, they're not important. But no, you're right. It's I hadn't actually thought how ridiculously easy it was to round up every single hoodlum in a major metropolitan area.
1: 96 of them and pack them into the 93rd precinct. Yeah. Lock up, you know. <laughs> and using the footage from uh, He Walked by Night, which John Alton also shot. Absolutely.
4: That whole thing, like, we have 96 of the criminals, we're only missing one. And it's like, Really? Like, they have really meticulous records. Yeah, it's kind of wild. And uh, yeah, I didn't even think about the overseas stuff. But yeah, this whole case spans the globe with the crossing of the Atlantic and, uh you know, having Alicia allegedly hiding out in Sicily. And really, I'm glad that you brought this up because some of the things that they do trying to find where Alicia is – there are moments in this where I was almost reminded of like Manhunter, where it was like, "Oh, you're gonna look at this picture," and just like the 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 uh, forensics of the case are really interesting here in 1955.
1: Yeah, it's almost like uh, they got the magic police force, the way uh, modern movies have the magic, you know, computer hackers and like that exactly. it comes in and uh, just solves monumental monumentally complex problems in a... In a set. Enhance. So.
4: Enhance. We're almost there. Oh, one more. Oh, it's beautiful. It's perfect. Close <laughs> up of this... No yeah, exactly. this picture of a sign from, yeah, 500 feet away. Yeah, it's amazing. All right, we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show.
0: Mrs. Hopper, there's no harm.
3: She can get along very nicely without you. You're not the kind of person I want be to see.
0: I hope you're not judging by my temporary surroundings, Mrs. Harper. My apartment... I
3: know been... the kind of man you are, Mr. Darby. I've gone to the trouble to find out. She said I, I had a promise never to see you again. That, that you weren't interested in me at all. All you wanted was money.
0: Take a look. A little excitement.
3: Ex-art dealer murdered in Balboa. Well, what do you know? A murder, right over on the other side of the highway. And a murder right here in Balboa. Some character
0: by the name of Darby.
2: These are letters which your daughter wrote to the late Ted Darby. Price is $5,000 cash. Ted, darling, I just wasn't alive until I met you, but you came like a fresh wind blowing through my stuffy room. I don't know, Ted, if I can make up my mind to do what you asked yesterday
3: i I'll have
2: to ask you to leave. Would you like me to call the police? I wouldn't do that if I leave, Mr.
4: That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at the reckless moment. Till then, I want to thank this week's co host, Jedidiah and Brian. So, Jedidiah, what is happening with you, sir?
1: Nothing at all. You follow me on Twitter. If, if, if anything happens, I'll let you know there.
4: You're always so good at selling your own stuff. You're like Lloyd Kaufman, you know? Just always selling, pitching riffing about stuff can never keep you quiet about all the you know the things that you've done
1: yeah if you know what if you've uh if you bought my book last time you heard me on the projection booth go go buy it again there's only the one that's still available so.
4: christmas is coming up and people need stocking stuffers peckerwood is a perfect that's stocking true. stuffer
1: yeah for somebody you really are angry with
4: and brian what's going on in your world sir
1: Usual stuff, you know, back very much
5: in the trenches of teaching, trying to catch up on some uh, some articles I should have written over the summer. My main thing at the moment is actually working on the piece on the f- Willie Walton's film music for Laurence Olivier's trilogy of Shakespeare films. It's kind of outside of my uh, my usual remit, but it's it's very very interesting. And the Dundee University Film Society is currently doing a season dedicated to the favourite films of John Waters. So that's. A lot of fun. So, uh, everything from William Castle to Bergman, with lots of stuff in between.
4: Waters used to do. It was the Saturday night screening of the Maryland Film Festival every year, and they would allow him to pick something and introduce it and do a Q and A after. And I think partially because it was John Waters, but also partially because they were films that we never would have seen otherwise. That screening always sold out. And there were so many good things, things I still think about and talk about today. So I can't even imagine what kind of great stuff you're showing over there.
5: Just just got hold of his uh, copy of Joseph Losey's Boom, which actually has a commentary by, by Waters, which is a thing of beauty. But yeah, really interesting. Otto Preminger with Bonjour Tristesse coming up. And as I said, some you know some uh, Andy Warhol uh, and, uh, and Andy Warhol, Kenneth Anger Night. It's going to be interesting. Vassbinder. Woody Allen, properly eclectic.
4: Yeah, he showed us uh, Backstair, the uh, Belgian killer dog movie. was the one? Uh, the Cat with Two Heads, which was more of a French porn film. There's one called Lovers, I think it was, with Catherine Deneuve's daughter. And it was uh, uh, a threesome movie that was also a musical. And it was just wonderful, wonderful stuff. And like I said, things I'd seen Backstair before, but otherwise things I never would have seen and seeing Baxter on the big screen what a treat.
5: Now he, as he said to have you know to make films in bad taste the first thing you need is impeccable taste and he's right. So
4: well thank you again guys for being on the show. Thanks everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projectionboothpodcast.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find a link over to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button
1: and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening.
4: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.